in a series. We're talking about out of context. Uh, we take things out of context. You can do it through a text message. You can do it about things you say. Uh, uh, I, was, I was thinking how, you know, especially as married couples, but, but just uh, in general, how we can take things out of context. We can, um, we can say, I'm not a morning person. I am not a morning person. And uh, a lot of times, even here on Sundays, you know, I'm walking through the building, and, and today it happened. People ask you, how you doing? And I'm literally like, I don't know yet. <laughs> it's too early, right? That's just, I'm not, I'm not like, like some of you wake up 5 o'clock in the morning, bing, hey, I'm awake. Um, but sometimes in the morning, I can be taken, uh, taken wrongly. You know, I mean, Angela has done it before. You like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I'm not awake. You know, it's just sometimes we, we don't understand each other. So it's not only out of context, but it's just literally not understanding one another. People say things, and we don't understand what they mean behind it, and we take it wrong, right? And it can actually change the way we act and respond and, and react to them. It can change our attitude oftentimes. We do it with the Bible, too. We, we read things, we don't understand it, or we read things, we take it out of context. We read things, and we read it wrong. We misapply it. And so in this series, we're kind of looking at some of those verses, and uh, I, I, I like today's. It, today's. Today's is a real cool one. I think it's one of those where we do misinterpret it. It's not so much that we take it out of context as much as we misread it. We don't understand what it means. And, and here's the crazy thing. When we take things like a scripture in the Bible and we apply it to something that it never was meant to apply to, but well, we miss what it was originally meant to apply to and how... It could benefit us, and I believe today's verse is going to help us with that. So we've been using a scripture out of Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15 each week uh, to challenge us to, uh, to rightly handle the Word of God. It says, do your best as to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has, not, uh, has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth. God wants us to rightly handle His, his Word, His truth, to understand it properly, to apply it properly both in our lives and in to context. And so let's pray. Let's ask God to help us today. Father, we do ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us uh, the things you want us to know today, to see. Help us to apply the scriptures to our lives. Help to change us, to make us uh, more like Jesus, to help us to understand how you would have us to live our lives. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to teach us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So have you ever heard the phrase, and, and you probably would have thought, hey, that's the scripture in the Bible, but the phrase, I stand at the door and knock. Come on, wave at me if you've ever heard that. I stand at the door and knock. Yes, uh, most of us have. I stand at the door and knock. Um, when I hear that, you know, my first thought is, you're like, whose door is Jesus standing at? Show that pic for me, uh, Eva. Um, here's a very common picture of Jesus standing at a door and knocking. Now, this is the, uh, the English pasty version of Jesus, of course, um, not the Jewish version. But uh, here he is standing at the door. Whose door is that? Is that, is, that, is that my door? Is that somebody else's door? Is that, is that my neighbor's door? Is that, is, that, is that a door of a saved person or the door of a lost person? Whose door is Jesus standing at? Well, this phrase comes from Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. And the phrase does say, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. Now, the most common interpretation of this saying, Jesus is standing at, on the outside, Jesus is standing at the door knocking, the most common interpretation of this is that he is standing at the door of an unbeliever, a lost person. There he is. He's knocking at the lost person's heart, waiting for them to come in. 
Maybe you've heard that in an altar call, using an altar call, right? Or maybe that's how you came to Christ. And some preacher got up and he preached that verse and he used that verse, Jesus is standing at your door and knocking and, and waiting for you to open the door and let him in. And that moved your heart and you said yes to Jesus that day. Praise God. And you're saved here today. Well, is that what this verse is saying? Well, we're going to dive into that today and unpack it. And what we're doing each week is we're taking the verse and we're putting it back in the Bible in context with the other verses around it. So here we are in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation starts out, including this chapter 3, it starts out with a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the word revelation. It's God being revealed, Jesus being revealed to us. And it paints a picture of what that looks like. It's written by the Apostle John in approximately A.D. 95-96. So would that be about 60 ish years after the resurrection. And in this, the apostle John is writing and Jesus is giving him this revelation. He's getting this revelation from God. He's writing it down as a, as a letter to seven churches. It's written to seven churches in Asia Minor. And in the, in the, in the part, if you, if you can think Turkey, as a matter of fact, I got a map. Go ahead and put the map up uh, for me, Eva. You can kind of see here. Um, yep. So here's like, this is uh, Asia Minor, I wish I'd have zoomed out on this thing, but this is Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Um, and you'll notice you, you know, Ephesus on the left there uh, with the red square. So that kind of gives you kind of a reference, if at all you know geography. That, uh, Ephesus is right on the coastline. The book, uh, or the, 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 um, the book, it's a book. It's a book in the Bible written to Ephesus. Yeah, Ephesians. Thank you, Rob. Ephesians was written to that church right there. So, so you got Ephesus right there. That's, that's not one of the seven churches, but that is a church we know about. But that just gives you a point of reference. In the book of Revelations, seven letters to seven churches. The last, le- the last letter to the last church is to the church at Laodicea. Laodicea, here it is in the blue square on the right side here. It's up in the mountain regions, Laodicea is. Um, you'll notice Colossae right below it there uh, in the mountain regions. That's another letter in the Bible, the book of Colossians, right? So we, okay, so we're getting kind of a reference here. But uh, Laodicea was, uh, it was full of people who were very comfortable, wealthy. It was a wealthy city. It was a very wealthy city. The people there prided themselves in their ability to provide for themselves, now, this was, uh, the city was located on a very major trade route at the time. And so you had a lot of people traveling through the city, and they would stop, out to eat, stop by to eat. They'd stop by to buy stuff. You can imagine the market there. It had all kinds of fine jewelry, gold. It had clothing. It was, it was, it was on a trade route. So there were people that were going there to, to do commerce, and they were spending a lot of money, and the people there were wealthy. They were making a lot of money selling their wares. And so these people were very comfortable, and they actually did pride themselves in their ability to provide for themselves. It's noted in antiquity that an earthquake destroyed their city in A.D. 60. So you can imagine um, it was a mess. And the people of Laodicea refused help from the Roman government, insisting on rebuilding the city themselves. Again, reinforcing the idea that they were very self sufficient. I got this. We got this. We got, we got our own money. We don't need your money. We'll take care of this. Now, this attitude of self-sufficiency obviously spilled over into the church 
at Laodicea. As we see in the letter that Jesus inspired John to write to them. Let's look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 15. We're going to back up a little bit. Verse 15, Jesus says, I know your works. How many of you know God knows our works? He knows what's going on. He knew what was going on then in the church. He knows what's going on today in the church. He knows what's going on in our house, in our hearts, in our lives. He knows what's going on in our communities. He knows what's going on. Jesus knows what's going on. He tells them, I know your works. And he says this, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's the first words of Jesus to the church at Laodicea. Wow. Very corrective, right? Very strong words. So here it is, Laodicea. Put my map back up, Eva. Probably going to do this a few times. Here's Laodicea. It's in, the, it's in the valley between two big mountain ridges. And just to the north, you'll notice Hierapolis, right? And then again to the south was Colossae we talked about. And so, interestingly... Um, Hierapolis, just to the north, was famous for, both then and today, its hot springs. Literally, you can go on Google and look up Hierapolis, and there's literally big pools in, in the uh, travertine. Uh, there's travertine all over, and inside there's big pools of hot springs that are bubbling up. People literally travel there today, pay money to bathe in the hot springs. They're known to be medicinal and the same thing was going on back then. As a matter of fact, even before this letter was written, uh, the Greeks, this was a, this was a very uh, famous spot where people traveled to. It's, it's noted, in, again, in history, that Cleopatra, come on, some of you heard of her, right? Cleopatra uh, had traveled there and bathed in this hot springs of Hierapolis. So Hierapolis there, just, just to the north, right? It's a neighboring city was known for its hot springs. Colossae, on the other hand, was known for its cold water because it was at the foot of a mountain where there was the, the snow caps would melt on top of the mountain, and they actually had carved out into the mountain, and they came out of a spring right out of the side of the mountain, right into Colossae, and they were known for their cold water. People literally traveled there to get their cold water. They, they, it, was, it was a special thing where they, they had really good, really good water. You know, like, like we do today. We go where we go. We go to Walmart to get our water, right? You know, there's water in the tap at home. Yeah, but I'm going to Walmart. Going to get some water there, right? Because it says on there, spring water, right? <laughs> oh, we're so silly. So you, you, had, you had Hierapolis, you had the hot springs, you had Colossi just to the south, right on either side of Laodicea. Laodicea, on the other hand, had no water. None. They had no water source. You know, here in Stone County, we just drill a hole in the ground about 150 feet and pipe the water up, right? They didn't have that opportunity. They lived in the mountains where it was rocks and, and, and granite base, so they couldn't do that. They had no water at all. They literally had to transport their water through an aqueduct six miles to get water into their city. The aqueduct is still there today. You can go look in artifacts. They've uncovered this aqueduct, big arches with this big, big, uh, big basically a pipeline, right, that came six miles to bring their water. And by the time the water uh, reached Laodicea, it had become, you know it, lukewarm. And lukewarm water 
is tepid, it's unclean, it's undrinkable. It's the kind of water that would make you sick. Interestingly, how did Jesus know, right? Interestingly, here Christ compares the spiritual condition of that city to, or to that, of that church to the city's water issue. He said, I wish that you were hot like the waters of Hierapolis. I wish that you were cold like the cold water coming out of the springs of Colossae, but you're not. You're lukewarm or you're spiritually useless. You're spiritually useless. You have no kingdom purpose. You know, I just shared, I just shared about missions and how, how we're building the kingdom of God. We want to be useful in God's kingdom. This is not about us. This is not, this is not to make us feel better. We don't do church to make ourselves feel better. We do church because we're building the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are establishing truth in our communities. And don't you know, there's a lot of lies floating around. And we want to be of use to God's kingdom, spiritually useful. We individually want to be useful in God's kingdom. We as a church want to be useful in God's kingdom. How do we do that? How do we do that? I think, I think one of the, the greatest ways uh, that we can be useful is to invest in God's kingdom. You know, and we, we use terms like, you know, give your time, talent, and treasury. But it's, it's true. It's like you, 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 you want to make a difference. You want to be a, a bright light. People know all about darkness. What people are looking for is a bright light. They're looking for hope. They're looking for truth. And we have the opportunity where we live, where we work, where we play, where we go to school. We have the opportunity to influence others, to be useful to the kingdom of God, to be a witness or a testimony of what God's done in our lives. And one of the reasons we come together and we sing like we do and and Morgan knows this, and she's taught it many times to the team here, but we, we, do, we come together as a worship team, and we practice, and we work hard to create an environment for you to experience the very presence of God, because we want you, on Sunday mornings, we want, she wants you to be marked by heaven, so that when you leave this room, you go and you make a difference. You're, you're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you're proud of what God's doing in your life, and you want to tell people about it. Amen. That's being useful. And sometimes we're so blind to that, we're, 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 we're naive to the fact that there are people all around us that are lost. They're, they're going to go to hell one day when they die because they don't know Jesus. And yet we have the very message of hope that they need. They need to know that God loves them and that he died on a cross for them. So they too can experience what we're going to experience one day. And that is the very presence of God. That's being useful, but we have to be willing to give our lives to the kingdom of God, serving one another. One of the greatest ways you can be useful is to be generous, to be full of hospitality, to serve one another. Uh, well, the Bible tells us also to be useful means to make disciples. And that is something we need to hear, and we will continue to, to proclaim. I, I need to hear this, and many of you in this room today, you're mature Christians. And for you to remain useful in the kingdom of God, right, is 
to make disciples. Don't just say, okay, I got the lesson, I've done it, all right, I'm good. No, now it's time to teach somebody, to show somebody the way, to be the example for somebody. And I know we have the opportunity to do that with our children, our grandchildren, but it's so much bigger than that. There's somebody in this room right now crying out, begging for someone to take time with them to show them what it means to be a Christian. And the answer is sitting right next to you, maybe right in front of you, right behind you, right, right around us, right? So to be useful in God's kingdom is to make disciples. At the end of the day, it's what we're doing glorifying God. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 14, he says, salt is good, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? I mean, it's a rhetorical question because it can't. He says this, he says, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. And he gives, this is the solution here, it is thrown away. Jesus says it's thrown away. And then he goes on to say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. A little secret here. That's what he's saying. A little secret to success in the kingdom. If you've got ears to hear, you'll hear what he's saying. Don't be like useless salt. Don't be like salt that's lost its flavor. <laughs> Stay salty, my friend. I wanted to say that so bad. <laughs> I've been waiting to say that the whole time. Stay salty, right? Make a difference. And Jesus tells the church at Laodicea, you, you basically are like your water supply. You're lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. Like, useful, right? You're, you're lukewarm. And, and lukewarm water is full of disease and rot. And it, it, and it makes me sick. I just want to spit it out of my mouth. You're useless, but be useful. <laughs> he goes on. He builds the case. In verse 17, Jesus goes on to the church at Laodicea. And he says, for you say, all right, so they do have a defense. <clears throat> but don't you know, right? They have a defense. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing huh, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What a spanking from Jesus. Now listen to this. The church at Laodicea has been lured away from their love of God by, by their love of money. Paul tells us later in the epistles that the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, right? Not money. It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to be wealthy. But the love of money is the root of all evil. It is traced back to corruption in our hearts. And here Jesus spanking the church at Laodicea and saying, you've lost your love for God. Because you got distracted with your love for money. I, I read this and I, I don't want to just say, man, that church was jacked up. I don't want to just look at them and not ask the question, has, has my love for God been extinguished by my love for money, by my love for success? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. In fact, don't, don't lose the anchor point of, am I lukewarm? Am I useless? Am I still salty or have I lost my effect? And if so, why? Maybe it's my love for money. Verse 18, Jesus expands on this idea of their love for money and their distraction. He says, I counsel you, 
So you want to listen. This is Jesus counseling the church, right? I counsel you to buy from me. And then he listed out gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Because they thought they were rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Okay, so context. In addition to the Laodicean uh, community having being known for lukewarm water or bad water, right, rancid water, they were known for that. But also, they were known for three things. They were known for their banks. They had a very large financial industry. They were very wealthy, and they had big banks. So people came to bank in Laodicea. They also were known for their luxury, luxury textile trade. So it is, they were known for these uh, satiny black garments. It was the all the rave. It was what everybody wore. If Instagram existed back then, everybody would have been wearing those luxury black garments, and it would have been like, I cannot wait to get me a new luxury black garment. So that would have been all the rave. And they were also known for having a school of ophthalmology, and they had created this eye salve that people came from all over to purchase to help with their eyes. Interestingly, again, Jesus used all three of these things that the Laodiceans were known for to correct the church. He says, instead of earthly gold, right? Instead of treasure on earth, you should buy gold refined by fire from me, he says. You should be seeking me. You should be seeking the riches that I offer. And this meant you should be seeking a faith that has been tested or a faith that has been purified. That's not something that I, I, I say we would naturally do. To seek a faith that has been purified by fire. Right? If, if, if Rob was here today and he had a table in the back, missions, but also there was a place where you could sign up to go through the fire of God to get your faith tested. I don't think anybody would sign up. Are you doing that today? We're going to do that today. Okay. No. Nobody would sign up, right? Nobody wants pain. We, 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 we do whatever we can to get out of pain. We do whatever we can to get out of, of suffering. So that, you know, we want to feel good. We want, I, I mean, I do, right? You do. Yet Jesus is saying, you know, you're, 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 you're building your bank accounts. You're building your big houses. You're getting full. You're rich. Materially, you've got everything you could ever imagine, but you want more. You're building your earthly bank accounts, but how about you seek out from me something that only God can provide, and that is a faith that is tested and purified by fire. True riches, true riches that only Jesus can supply. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.7, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, and he, and he notes, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. So a, a, a faith that has been tested. I've said this over the years. I, I, I believe this. I've lived this. I'm still living this. Many of you could say the same thing. Faith, which is essential to our Christendom. It's essential. Faith is essential to being a Christian. The Bible tells us that the just shall live by faith. We live as Christians by faith. But let me say this. Faith is not faith until faith is tested. You can say you have faith, but prove it. When have you used your faith 
to overcome an adverse situation. If you haven't had to do that, your faith isn't tested. And Jesus is saying, you're seeking out riches and wealth, but why don't you seek out something that really matters? Come to me and let me test your faith if you want true riches. True spiritual riches, such as a faith that has been proven always, always, always supersedes worldly riches. Secondly, Jesus said, um, come, come buy from me. Buy from me white linen instead of the black wool garments that were very popular in Laodicea. I mean, everybody had, had to have them, right? He said, instead of buying those garments, you should buy white garments that symbolize Christ's righteousness. I, I'm always reminded in, in times like this that the Bible tells us that our righteousness, our good works, our best day ever, like I live for Jesus today better than any other day of my life, the best you could ever offer God is like filthy rags to God. It matters none. It's useless. Well, well, well how do I even get into heaven then if, if, if there's nothing good I can do? If I can't prove myself, then how do I even get into heaven, right? It's through Christ's righteousness. Dustin, if you know how to turn up my monitor, please do it. I'm screaming up here, bro. To me. But I need it louder. I need it louder if you can. So the gospel is this. That's it. I don't know if it's loud out there, guys, but help me out. Yeah. The gospel is this. There's nothing as human beings we can do to earn God's love. There's nothing we can do to earn heaven. But Jesus Christ, out of his love for us, he gave his life on a cross, on Calvary. He was beaten, he was whipped, he was mocked, he was spat upon. And he was nailed to a cross. And the Bible says he bore our sin. And in exchange for all of that, he gives us his righteousness. He is a pure spotless lamb before God. He's acceptable to God. He is. He became a man to die in our place so that we could then have his righteousness. The only way, the only way to heaven is in Christ. You can imagine with me, I, you know, I, I've got on my garment and I, I take off my filthy rags and I put on his righteousness. And now when God looks at me, he doesn't see me or anything good that I've ever tried to do. He only sees Christ and Christ's righteousness on me and you. And so often we, we, try, to, we try to prove something to God. It's, it's, it's religion in the worst sense of the word. We try to prove ourselves to God. We get on this treadmill of performance. We, 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 we I got to be good. I got to be good. I got to be good. Oh, I'm not good. Oh. And we do this weird thing and we repeat. We repeat and we repeat, trying to be good, trying to prove ourselves to God. And he's not looking for us to be good. He's looking for us to be in Christ. I've said this so often over the years, but if you would put the same amount of energy, the same amount of energy that you're putting into trying to be good, if you put the same amount of energy into loving God, you wouldn't have to try to be good anymore because you would be in Christ. And his righteousness would clothe you. And Jesus here, he scolds the church. He scolds the church for we're trying to be, they were being religious. Look at me. I go to church. Look at me. I'm a Christian. 
yet our best works are like filthy rags. Later in the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, it says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The fine linen that Jesus invites us to is his righteousness that we put on. The third thing Jesus points out is the eye salve. Again, they, they had a school of ophthalmology there. They, they, were, they were known, renowned for their eye salve. And instead of the eye salve that the Laodiceans produced and sold, he says they should purchase a spiritual eye salve, referencing the truth of God's word. You know, there's something about us, we want knowledge, we want to know stuff, we want to be knowledgeable. And there's, there's a side to that that's pure and innocent and good. But oftentimes we're full of knowledge, but we don't know God. We can't see God, we can't know God. And we know God through the scriptures, right? Through the, the, the truth of God's word. Number one, we don't open the book, so we don't know God. And number two, we open the book, but don't understand. And so we don't know God. You know, our mission statement at Northwood is that we create Christ-centered communities to help people know God and to grow in Christ and to go in the power of the Holy Spirit. But it starts with knowing God, knowing God both experientially and intellectually. And we know God through the Word of God. The Spirit of God reveals to us His, His, His character, His grace, His love, His, His very nature. He reveals to us. When we open the Bible and we read the Bible, He reveals to us who He is. He wants you to know Him. And to know him here in our heads and our brains translates into how we know him experientially. Now, now I want to, I want to, I want to do something. I, I'm, 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 I'm not. I want to. Let me just. I'm not apologizing first, but what am I doing? I'm trying to set you up here. I'm not picking on anybody. How's that? All right. But when we were worshiping earlier, and the Spirit of God flooded into this room, because He loves us, and, and He's building His church. I was on the side over here, and I, just kinda, I was just kind of looking around. That's what Pastor Mike does sometimes. And I, and I know there's different situations all over the room, and I'm not picking anybody out. But there were some people who were just worshiping God. And it isn't always that when you raise your hands, it's an indication that you're worshiping God, you know, because I've literally raised my hands before, and I was not in presence. I was not worshiping God. I was doing it out of habit. I've done that too, right? I get it. But then, there, then there's those in the room that, that you're just staring. You're just looking up here like watching. And I'm, I'm, let, me, let me just say it this way. I, it, it, sometimes it breaks my heart when I see that because I'm feeling like, man, I want you to know him. I want you to experience him. I want you to be hungry for God. I want you to go after God. Can I, can I, can I take a commercial break here? Jeffrey, get up real quick. I feel the need to illustrate. So just get in the light over here. Now, Jeffrey, Jeffrey's one of my best friends, and, and, and we're not gay. Just, just, you'll get it. You'll get it why I said that. But, but, uh, no, if, if, you, if, if you're gay, that wasn't a dig. I just, we're not. So, I love Jeffrey. Like, we've been, we've been through a lot together, and a lot of, lot of, lot of good, bad, ugly. We've, we've sobbed on each other's shoulders over the years. We've, We've prayed together. We've done a lot together. So we have, we have, we have a relationship that matters. It's, it's, it's strong. Uh, probably, probably almost, probably, if not, I mean, there's a few others like Arnie and a few others in the room. But man, me and you probably more than anybody for me anyway in this room. And um, so when I see Jeffrey, 
I don't just see another guy. I mean, I might walk in the store over here, his store in Seema, or I might run into him in Walmart. We've done that many times over the years. Yeah, I see Jeffrey. I don't just see another guy. When I see Jeffrey, my heart, it gets excited. Like, Jeffrey. And you know, it's weird because I'm going to see each other a lot. So it's not like, it's not like I hadn't seen you in a year. And when I see Jeffrey, I want to hug. That's why I said we're not gay. But I want to hug, man. Come here. Come here. Man. And we, we hug just about every time, right? There's, it's rare. If he's with a customer or something, I don't walk up in the rug. Because that'd be weird. But when I see Jeffrey Mott, I, and I hope you feel the same way. I hope it's mutual. All these years he's thinking, I wish he wouldn't hug me. <laughs> so, so I don't know what that is. How do you describe I love you, right? And I, I could say that. I could put that label on it. Maybe that's what it is. Other than that, I don't even know what to call that. So I want, I want you to be that, that reactive when you are in the presence of God, right? That your heart does something that you want to hug. And I don't know what raising your hands is. And some of you, you grew up maybe in a very strict church and they would forbid that, you know, raising hands was of the devil. I don't know. But, um, and I'm not telling you to raise your hands because I said it either. But there's something about, God, give me a hug. There's something about, it's a response. Not something we have to do out of religion. Man, if I just did that out of, out of oh, I got to hug Jeffrey, that'd be sad. Well, it just wouldn't last, would it? And that's the sad thing. It wouldn't last. And we've been together almost 20 years. It wouldn't last. It wouldn't make it. The test of time, the test of, but I'm going to tell you, God does something on the inside, and you're, oh, you're excited to see him. <laughs> you just want a big hug. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you. I love you, brother. So, so here, you can't, and Jesus tells us, you can't see God unless you open the Word of God and you begin to re- get the revelation of who he is. Ephesians 1 tells us in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, That's my prayer for me and you today. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he, Jesus, has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That's us. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Christ is right now praying for you and I. His love for us, his affection for us is being poured out on us. And we are in a position to choose whether to respond. To respond. It's kind of like Jeffrey and I, you know, I went to hug you and you responded. Big hug. Dude, that's us in God. We we can respond like that or we can just look at him. And I think oftentimes it's because we don't understand. We're blind and Jesus is saying, you need some eye salve. You need to take off your good works. Take, take that off. Take that black satin garment off. Put on my righteousness. Jesus said, don't, don't identify your distractions. Your wealth, your riches. Everyone else in here is wealthy compared to those people in Honduras that have one meal a day. Don't be naive. 
Don't be distracted. Don't be lukewarm. Don't be useless. Jesus is saying, come on. Buy from me the things that matter. Faith that's tested. Righteousness that is his. And the truth of his word that washes our mind and helps us to love God over and over that lasts, that stands the test of time. Verse 19, Jesus goes on, he says, those who I love, come on, don't you want to be in that category? <laughs> those that I love, I reprove and discipline. I correct. And he says, so be zealous and repent. The word zealous here is interpreted in the Greek as being Agree with me. Agree with me. Get this and repent. I think when we're disciplined, our responsibility is simply to agree with Jesus and repent. You're right, God. I'm wrong. And I, I repent of that. I'm turning around. I'm facing you, Jesus. Thank you. And now our scripture, verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is here today standing at the door knocking. I could see he's outside the church door knocking. He's saying, Hey, Northwood, I'm here. I'm here with some correction. I'm, I'm, here, I'm here to correct you because I love you. I'm here to hand out some discipline because I love you and I want you to grow and I want you to experience me in great ways. I, I, I don't want to leave you left to your distractions. I don't want to leave you in lukewarmness knocking at our door. And, and what do we do? We, we, we have the opportunity to open the door and say, Jesus, come in. We agree with you. We need you. We need your correction. We need your discipline. And we repent. We repent. It says he stands at the door and knocks here and open the door, he would come into us. He would come into us and he would dine, and that's so symbolic of fellowship. He wants to fellowship with us, he wants to hang out with us, he wants us to know him and to be known by him. 